You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation, it's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. Here are your hosts, Tyler and Charlie. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast, a very special edition of the Glory UGA Podcast today. You guys know the drill by now. I'm your host, Tyler, and I have great news for you guys today as we have a brand new co-host to introduce. You're such a jerk. Don't do that. Well, it's well, rude. It's not rude. It's not rude. I'm, I'm the jerk. You're the one that's left us hanging here for the past month. Actually, I think it's been like two months. How long has it been since you've been on the show? I don't know, you've been I think like everyone has been just fine without me. I. You'd be surprised how many comments I've gotten, how many DMs I've gotten, how many emails I've gotten asking where Charlie is. And I got an answer for you. I don't want to speak for you. I, I don't know how many shows, like, have you been listening? Yeah. How many shows have I had to do solo in these? I, I really think it's been like two months since you've been on this show. I mean, like you've I been mean, in outer space. Sorry. Have you heard all these shows, solo shows I've had to do? Yeah, I've listened to all yeah, of them. Yeah, that's a lot of work, right? You know how that stresses me out. You know how that stresses me out. You're not my responsibility. I'm the jerk. I'm the jerk because you just went off and abandoned all of us for however long doing God knows. Well, where were you actually anyway? I don't even know. I, I know you were not here, but where were you? You know, here, there. I, I don't know here. Though. I've been here. You haven't been here. The beach. The beach. Northeast. The northeast. Different places. Very specific, Charlie. You know. Northeast you is just a... When you have opportunities, you have to take them. I mean, great. I'm jealous. I'm happy for you because, I mean, what? It's been about 15 months since we've been able to do much of anything. You're very dramatic. Well, it has been 15 months, right? I mean, well, okay. So when did life stop existing as we know? Is March 2020? I don't know, but you're being dramatic. I haven't been able to go out and do and gallivant wherever I want to. I've been here holding down the floor while you've been doing, while you've been doing all that stuff. You having the fun. You don't need me. You did just fine. Yeah, thank you. Maybe, but it's stressful. It's just weird sitting here talking to yourself. I don't know if you've ever done that for an extended period of time. After a while, it's just like you lose your train of thought. You don't know what you're saying, who you're even talking to anymore. You always talk. Yeah, but not for like an mostly. hour straight. No, come on. Some of us pretend like we're listening, but we're really Like not making an listening. offhand comment to yourself is one thing, but sitting here just talking into a microphone in a room all alone by yourself for an hour is like, okay. I think your fans appreciate it, and you've done a great job. I mean, I, I hope they do. I don't know. Okay, well, I, I do appreciate Now you're just trying to warm me up. Now you're trying to butter me up here and get some brownie points. But despite the fact that you came on here firing shots, calling me a jerk, it's still great to have you back. Trust me. Very excited to have you back. And I don't know 
if you were keeping up, but while you were gone, I was busy putting together all these detailed scheme theme episodes. At least I tried to make them as detailed as I could. And we are putting a wrap on that here as we end the month of June. From this point forward, we are looking ahead to the 2021 college football season as it is now just a little more than two months away. Think about that, Charlie. I want you to think about this for a second. In about two and a half months, you will once again be sitting in a packed, 100% capacity Sanford Stadium. Let's go. I mean, think about that. Think about how amazing that's going to be. I have one word. What? Hot. Oh, I mean, it's going to be hot. It's going to be very Well, week hot. one, I mean, okay, it's going to be outdoors. It's not going to be indoors in Charlotte, but it's going to be at night. So it'll be hot, but not as hot. Not the, not the scalding, typical noon open of the season when you're playing like Louisiana Monroe. But week two is coming, right? And UAB is going to be a scorcher. It's going to be hot. First, Yeah, it's going to be hot. When South Carolina is at night after that. So that, so second home game is not going to be super hot. So there's that. Well, I mean, even in November these days, it's just hot. It's just hot. If it's if it's a if it's a noon or three thirty game all the way through about early November, yes, it's going to be hot. It's going to be hot. I, I, I'm with you on that, but come on, that's a small price to pay. It's a small price to pay to get our lives back to what we love doing here: going to Georgia football games, living it up. You're looking at me like I'm crazy. You just you're, all you're focused on is the weather. How can you be focused on the weather right now when we're just a little more than two months out from college football? I just that's like a real about. college football season, not yes. this ten game thing. I know you're very excited. Yeah, you're but not. You will not get to experience getting your tickets from the mailbox this year. Yeah, I know. I am not happy about that. Like, I guess convenience factor, it's cool. But like, I, I think I mentioned this on the show a couple weeks ago. That's one of like that probably is maybe my favorite day of the year. Honestly, the excitement of coming home. Usually, it's usually early August, so you're like three ish weeks away, and then you come home. You got the package there. My wife's a wonderful person. She leaves it there for me to open, even though she gets home before me most of the time. And it's kind of just let me open it, have my moment, and then you just ever so delicately take the tickets out, look at the the artwork, the design, who's on what ticket. And then rip them up. No way. No, you keep those together. Well, you used to keep them together. You you very delicately rip them apart. Because I have every ticket I've from every game I've been to. I actually have them here somewhere. I have probably about four. I don't know how many tickets I've got. 400 tickets or so. You've seen my little... What are you going to do with all those? Well, the plan, which has been the plan for a while, is to frame all of them like by season. Like, here's the 2007 season Where of tickets. Where are you going to put that frame? In, in this Georgia place of an office thing. I, I don't... It's not a, I know people space. call this a man cave. I don't call this a man cave because it's not a cave, first off. It's not subterranean. And... I mean, okay, now we're getting technical. I don't think people care. Okay, in this Georgia-ish office room. Sure. I don't know that you have space for 400 tickets. And the thing is, is like, well, who would look at it? I would look at it, and then I could like tell people, guess what I've got? And, but no one's, everyone's be like, who cares? Why did you do that? You're stupid. You're a nerd. So I can't do that anymore, right? So on my ticket collection, what I was, because some of the t- tickets have been digital for like bowl games or whatnot, so I just like print them out and like make that my ticket that goes in my little box, but can't do that anymore. But anyway, very excited. Just about two months away. But anyway, I have had a blast doing all of these scheme theme episodes, but today it has to come to an end. We got too much to talk about moving forward the next couple months, so we're going to wrap it all up once and for all, at least for this season. And we got a lot of scheme-related questions sent in for the scheme theme. I guess it'll be like the scheme theme summer, not quite a month, a little bit more than a month. And we got a great reaction out of you guys too, so... So much so that we were able to come close to covering all of the questions that were sent in on their own little individual episodes. So today, 
We're gonna do our best to go back and respond to all the other questions that were sent in that we just haven't had a chance to get to yet. And if we miss a couple guys, I so sincerely apologize for that. I've spent the past couple days going back and like just looking through my DMs, looking through my mentions on Twitter, trying to find every single question that was sent in. So I'm sure I missed something. If I did, feel free to send it in to me again and we'll throw it in on like just a random mailbag episode. But we definitely want to try to answer everyone's questions. But these are the last couple questions that we've gotten that I was able to find going back over it this weekend. So I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to turn this thing over to Charlie. Charlie, what do you got for me today? Where are we starting? All right, our first question is from Tom, and he's the guy in Japan, so thank you. Which is incredible, by the way. Thanks yes. again for listening all the way out in Japan, he Tom. He would like for you to explain a wheel route and how it's usually defended. Mm. And he his comment was that without Jordan Davis and Richard LeCount against Florida last year, he thinks we were just out of luck with that. Yeah, we actually got a, quite a few questions um, on wheel routes and what happened against Florida and why we weren't able to adjust better defensively to stop what they were doing because it was pretty obvious what they were doing early in the game. So Tom was the first one who sent a question about this. We went with his question, even though I know we got a couple more on the same topic. But this is a great question. Um, I, I wanted, I actually did want to do a full episode on this, but not more I thought about it. I was like, well, that game's so far in the rear view. Do I really want to go back and kind of rehash what happened there on like its own individual episode? Like how many people will be interested in that? Maybe a lot. Maybe I just misjudged that there. But regardless, let's go ahead and break this down real quick. So what is a real wheel route? Number one, what is a wheel route? I think a lot of you guys probably know this or have a basic idea, especially if you watch that Florida game because they ran it over and over and over and over, and we just couldn't seem to stop it consistently all day long but basically in its most basic form and guys when we're talking doing all this scheme theme talk there are different variations of everything that happens in college football and really any level of football but if we're going just the general basic old school wheel route that is when the running back is sent is he lines up on in the backfield and then he is sent up the sideline out of the backfield into a pass route Typically to the boundary, which is the side that's closest to the sideline, the field is the, is the wider side that's furthest away from the sideline. Typically that's done to the boundary, although not necessarily always. And there's, and, and again, variations. Nowadays you, can, you see slot receivers run wheel routes. Tight ends can run wheel routes. But the traditional old school wheel route that Florida was really able to just devastate us with last year, that is when the running back lines in the backfield and sent up the sideline out of that backfield. And yes, Florida... Obviously, if you watch the game, which I know all of you did, we probably still have some nightmares over that. It's tough to get over that when you see the same thing over and over again. That's what beats you. Florida obviously had a lot of success against us because the reason they had a lot of success with those wheel routes is because they were running those in combination with rub routes to free up the running backs. I know the big question coming out of that game was, how in the world were the running backs so consistently wide open down the sideline on these wheel routes? How did we not adjust? What was going on? How were they able to so consistently get them open? Did we just not cover the wheel route? I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. Georgia can't cover a wheel route. It's not a matter of covering the wheel route, guys. Dan Mullen, I know we give him a lot of grief on here, and I think deservedly so, but he's a very good offensive mind. He did a really good job of scheming up that offense to create opportunities for the running backs to get freed up with rub routes. Now, what is a rub route? A rub route is where 
the offense is running a, a combo route. So in this case, you have the running back on a route that's going on the wheel route, going to the perimeter outside, going to the sideline. And then you run, it could be a stick route. It could be a little curl route. It could be a mesh route. There's a variety of different routes it can be. But what you're trying to do is you're trying to pick off or run into essentially the guy that is assigned to cover the running back in man coverage. And we played a lot of man coverage against Florida last year. I mean, in general, we play a lot of man coverage. That's just what we do as a rule. That's kind of what we do more often than not. Now, we run different coverages. Don't get me wrong. But that's like we love to run that press man coverage on the outside. We like to do that. And so against Florida, we were doing a lot of that. And one of the prime ways to attack man coverage like that is to run those rub routes that create natural picks. Now, if you are a defensive coordinator, you call those pick plays. If you're an offensive coordinator, you call them rub routes, right? It's just a matter of your perspective there, matter of semantics, but it's just a different perspective on how to look at that. Defensive coordinators obviously think they're illegal. They think the offensive players, those receivers, are deliberately and purposefully running into and creating contact with those defenders to free up their, their fellow receivers, whereas the offensive coordinator would say, no, no, they're running a natural route and just so happens that the defender is running into them while they're in the process of running their natural rounds, creating that natural rub, is what offensive coordinator would say. So again, matter of perspective there. But they were doing that all day long. Now, the big question that we've gotten through the past couple months about this is, all right, well, if that's what they were doing and we were man coverage and they were taking advantage of that with those pick plays, those rub routes, so they get the running back open on the wheel route, why did we not adjust to that? Why didn't we stop running man coverage and get into something else? Well, there's a reason for that too. We were playing a lot of man coverage in that game, not just because that's what Kirby Smart traditionally is like to do, but it was based heavily on what Florida did offensively coming into that game. We were in man a lot in that game because Florida ran a ton of RPOs last year. I talked about RPOs last week on our scheme theme episode. And they were running RPOs, especially to Kadarius Tony, who, by the way, was a really good player who was a first-round draft pick in this past NFL draft. And so if you have a team that runs a heavy amount of RPOs to a guy who's a really talented player that once gets the ball in his hands in space is a nightmare to bring down because he's so shifty and so elusive. Well, man coverage is the best way to attack RPOs. It's a catch-22. And this is what good offenses do. They put the defense in conflict. And whatever the defense does, you can't really be right if you have really good players and you execute it properly. So when an offense has that many weapons, when you've got Kadarius Toney and you've got Kyle Pitts and you've got a good quarterback back there who can put the ball where it needs to be, and you've got some running backs that can catch the ball in the backfield. When an offense has that many weapons and you're down some guys defensively, like Tom said, when you're down Jordan Davis, you're down Richard LeCount, well, you can't stop everything. Even, even when you're at 100%, defensively. You have all your players. You literally cannot stop everything. So as a defensive coordinator, what you do is you try to take away what the offense does best. You try to make them play left-handed. We've talked about this before on the show. And so what if Florida do really well coming to that game? Well, they threw RPOs. That's what they probably did better than anything else. That and get the ball to Kyle Pitts. So we chose to take away the RPOs and we chose to play that physical press man with Kyle Pitts as much as we can, get in his face and just try to out-physical him to a degree. I mean, we did kind of knock him out of that game, whether you want to call that a cheap shot or not. So we chose to do that and try to take that stuff away and try to make them play left-handed. And to Florida's credit, they did play left-handed. You, I mean, really as a coordinator, what you want to do, again, is you want to make the defense, make the offense do what they're not necessarily comfortable doing, or at least take away what they're most comfortable doing. And I felt like we did a pretty good job of that in that game. 
But Florida just had so many weapons, and we were down some guys defensively that they were able to play left-handed and do it well enough to beat us and kind of run away from us in that game. So part of it is the fact that, sure, we were down some guys. You can't discount that. But really, whether Richard Count was there, I don't know how much of a difference that makes. I thought Chris Smith played perfectly fine in that game. It was really just a matter of how Florida was able to scheme that up. And when you have as many weapons as they do, it's really hard to stop all of them. In some of those games, you just got to outscore teams. You got to—look what, what Alabama was able to do in the SEC title game. Yeah, Florida put up points on Alabama too. Alabama was really good, but Alabama could also put up those points. They could outscore them. And that game, we were not healthy enough offensively. I mean, even though we, we jump out to a 14 nothing lead, Stetson Bennett, who got us to that 14 nothing lead, goes out with a shoulder sprain. And then you got Dewan Mathis, and I don't want to kill the kid, but we know how that turned out. And JT Daniels, of course, magically can start the next week, but he can't play in that game, which is still a source of frustration for me. But the problem was there. I mean, Florida was good. They're going to score points. And we just didn't have the offense to keep up with them in that game, unfortunately. All right. Thank you for that thorough explanation. Is that thorough enough for you? Do you get the wheel routes now, Charlie? Yeah. I think that was a pretty good explanation. Let's go. All right. We had this next question was mentioned by several listeners, and they would like for you to explain the difference between zero technique and three technique for the defensive line. And by several listeners, you include yourself in that as well. Because I remember when this was sent in, like you comment, or maybe you sent me like a private yeah, DM. You're like, this just, is what I don't understand. Yeah, there's just, I just get confused easily. Well, then, I would say this is not common knowledge. Like you can explain it to me, and I'm going to forget it five seconds later. There are some things that well, my brain just won't. Well, remember. there are some things like football scheme related that are more common knowledge than others. I don't think, like, I think the, the defensive line techniques are becoming more common knowledge, but I still wouldn't say it's like, you know, mainstream stuff yet. Uh, so some of you might have a pretty good grasp of this, some of you maybe not. But if you're thinking about this, okay, the techniques. You're talking about zero technique. I mean, you can go all the way out to a seven to a nine technique. We don't really play those all that much. We'll just kind of stick from zero through five. That's what you see our defensive line play more often than not. All right, so zero technique is where your nose guard is straight head up on the center. All right, you visualizing this, Charlie? So the center, you get the guy snapping the ball, right? If you are lined up, your head... Thank you for mansplaining. Oh, my God. Don't give me the mansplaining. I wouldn't even talk to you. I was just talking to everyone out there. And looking at me like I'm an idiot. Okay, fine, 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 fine. All right, I apologize. Yes, got it. So you come on here. You call me a jerk. Tell me I'm mansplaining things. You come on here. You've been gone two months. You come on here talking trash like that. You did just fine. Keep going. Just fine. Thanks for your vote of confidence. Just fine. Just fine. Okay, I'm glad you know where the center is. I would hope you know where the center is since you kind of co-host a Georgia football podcast. All right. Anyway, so if you're head up, if you're a demon slime and you're head up on the center, that is zero tech, right? So think Jordan Davis. He's a zero tech nose guard. That does not, when I, now when I call him a zero tech nose guard, that does not mean that he only plays head up on the center. Jordan Davis can play shaded on the center. I seen him slide out to the guard and play a three tech. He could move around, but by definition, really his primary position, he has some versatility, believe it or not. I know he's a big guy, but he can move around the defensive line. I've actually seen him out there at the five a couple of times, not often, a couple of times. But his primary position is a zero-tech nose guard, head up on the center. Now, if you are to either side of the center, doesn't matter what side, all right, you are in a one technique, all right? So zero is head up. If you're on his inside shoulder or outside shoulder of the center, you're in a one technique. Jordan Davis, the vast majority of the time, is either in a zero or a one the vast majority of the time. Usually that's where your big, huge, hulking nose guard goes, that space eater. Now, when I talk about a three-tech defensive tackle, that's a guy more in line like a Jalen Carter or Devontae Wyatt. Three technique would be to the outside shoulder of the guard. All right, so let's kind of just go from the inside out here. Zero technique is head up on the center. If you go to the outside shoulder of the center, you are now a one technique. 
All right, if you move one slot over, one gap over, and you go to the inside shoulder of the guard, here's where it gets a little bit interesting. You would think it would go zero, one, two, right? Okay, well, it kind of does, but not exactly. So you go zero is head up on the, on the center, one is to the center's outside shoulder. If you go to the inside shoulder of the guard, that is going to be called a two I. So I standing for inside, the inside shoulder of the guard, okay? If you go head up on the guard, that is a two. If you go to the outside shoulder of the guard, that is a three technique. And that is where guys, again, like Devontae Wyatt and Jalen Carter, that is their primary position. And yes, they can move around. I've seen Jalen Carter play a one technique, a zero technique, a five technique. It's the same thing with Devontae Wyatt, all right? But the outside shoulder of the guard is where that traditional three, four, three tech defensive tackle is going to play, all right? Move out one slot further. If you go to the inside shoulder of the tackle, that is a four I. I again, meaning inside, inside shoulder of the tackle. If you go head up the tackle, that is a four technique. And then if you go to the outside shoulder of the tackle, which is where you see those five techniques of ends play guys like Malik Herring and Jonathan Ledbetter and now Trevon Walker, that's a five tech defense when they're playing there on the outside shoulder of the tackle. And again, there's position versatility. Just because I say a guy's a five tech defensive end doesn't mean that's the only spot he plays. He doesn't only line up on the outside shoulder of the offensive tackle. That's just his primary spot, right? That's his base position. Same thing with a guy like Jalen Carter. When I call him a three tech defensive tackle, doesn't mean he only lines up on the outside shoulder of the offensive guard. That's just kind of his base positioning, his base technique. And we move these guys around. We have so many different fronts that we can run. And those different fronts require those guys to play different techniques in different spots. But again, just in general, that's kind of how the defensive line techniques work. Does that make sense? Yes, thank you very much. I know much. visuals would probably help here, but I hope you yeah. can kind of visualize that to some degree. All right, thank you. Our next question is from Jay-Z Daniels guy. Um, he wants to know the pros and cons of running a 3-4 defense versus a 4-3 defense. He states that not too many run a 3-4 like Georgia. Um, like Georgia. <laughs> I love the way you said that. I am a little tired. Did you get confused sorry. there for a minute? Uh, oh, you get tired going on vacation for two months. Huh, must be nice. Okay, you're just jealous. I, I very much am, yes. He says that we've missed out on some prospects and the potential of guys since we go with a 3-4 instead of a 4-3. What do you think? And we want the pros and cons. Yeah, we've missed out on some guys. I think Miles Murphy's the most obvious example, who was a freshman at Clemson last year. is going to be an incredible player. He was really good for them last year, one of their highest grade defensive linemen on a really awesome defensive line. He's a stud out of the state of Georgia. We know that was a – you definitely can say that was a miss. But the reason – I think the primary reason he did not come here is that he did not want to play in a 3-4 because he did not want to play the defensive end position in a 3-4 because the defensive end position, as we were just talking about, the five-tech defensive end, a guy like Malik Carey and a guy like Jonathan Ledbetter, those guys don't put a big sack number. So that's, that's not what they're asked to do in our scheme. The outside linebackers, guys like Aziz Ojolari, Nolan Smith, Adam Anderson, those are the guys in a 3-4 scheme who are asked to put up your pass rushing numbers. Those are the guys who are your pass rushers. I mean, of course, you want your guys in the interior to rush the passer too, but they're not like your your true get-after at pass rushers. And Miles Murphy is not really a fit to play in a 3-4 as an outside linebacker. He's not the kind of guy that's going to play in space consistently. He's a true 4-3 defensive end, 100% absolutely. But there's also a flip side of that. And I, I, and I apologize. I want to say, put this out there. I apologize for Charlie calling you Jay-Z Daniels guy. We, again, we just didn't know exactly what to say because the name is in Arabic and we're not smart enough to be able to decipher that. So 
Well, I just remember at one point in time, the screen name was Jay-Z Daniels, right, Charlie? So that's that's yes. why we're going with that. Okay. So I just want to put that out there. I want to apologize again for my ignorance there and not being able to decipher that. But it's a fantastic question. But again, what I would say there is that, sure, we missed out guys like Miles Murphy, but, but our scheme also allows us to get guys that might not be a fit for a 4-3. Because if you're an outside line, like a guy like Adam Anderson is not a fit for a 4-3. That guy can't play out. He can't play a defensive end in a 4-3. He, he's an absolute liability against the run. Like even even in our scheme, he has been. I think he's doing he's doing better with that. I thought he made some strides from the ends of last season when he got more opportunities to do that. But I mean, he, he's not a fourth defensive end. He he can't sit up there and consistently hold the edge against the run. He just can't. He can't set the edge like that. So yeah, it can hurt us losing guys like Miles Murphy, but it also helps us getting different kinds of guys who fit that three four scheme. But this is a great question because I honestly. In full interest of full disclosure, I grew up my entire life in a 4-3 scheme. I played defense. I was an inside linebacker. I grew up in a 4-3 scheme. That's what I grew up knowing. And it wasn't until I I stopped playing, really, and started coaching a little bit that I get involved more with a 3-4. George starts running a 3-4, so I start looking more and more into it. And honestly, now, even though I grew up in a 4-3, I, I think the 3-4 is a superior defense if, if, big if, you can find the right personnel to fit that scheme. Okay, and let me explain both parts here. Why I like the the four three or the three four a little more, and why it might also be hard to find the personnel. So the four three is called a four three. I, I, I don't want to. It's not mansplaining, Charlie. Okay, and I think everyone probably knows this, but just that there's some people out there who don't know this. The four is the number of down linemen, right? You know that, right? Yeah. The uh, I'm okay. Fine. Sorry. Apologies. Three would be the number of linebackers that you have. So four, three, you have four down linemen, three linebackers. The offense knows that you're going to have four down linemen every single snap if you're in a four, three. They know we're all, and on your typical standard play, again, we're generalizing here, but on your typical standard play, you're going to, if you're not blitzing, you're going to bring four rushers, okay? If you're in a four, three, you know where all four rushers are coming from on every snap because they're all on line of scrimmage with their hand in the dirt. They're coming after the quarterback every play, right? Now, sure, you can run fire zones to a degree, some zone blitz stuff, but 4-3, it's hard to do in a 4-3 because 4-3 defensive ends aren't typically all that competent in coverage. A guy like Miles Murphy, sure, for Clemson, you can drop into coverage, I guess, and he can just kind of be a body there, but he's not covering anybody. He's just not going to cover anybody. One of the reasons the 3-4, in my opinion, is a superior defense in terms of especially rushing the passer is you only have three down linemen. So the offense knows where three of those guys are coming from, three of those rushers are coming from, but it gives you more depth in the defense because your outside linebackers, if you're in a base 3-4, which I know a lot of teams, like very few teams actually truly run a, th- a true base 3-4. Most teams run odd fronts and even fronts. You got to mix it up a little bit. But in, in a true base 3-4, old school base 3-4, your outside linebackers are playing off, barely offline scrimmage and their hands are not in the dirt. Okay. One of them is coming. Not both of them are coming typically. All right. If you if four guys are coming. So what I'm saying is when I say death in the defense, you have more people standing up away from line of scrimmage, which means you have more, a greater variety of players who can fire and come after the quarterback. You can, the offense knows where three of them are coming from. You got your three guys with their hands in the dirt on the line of scrimmage. But where's that fourth guy coming from? Is it your Sam? Is it your Will? Is your is it your Mike? Could it possibly be your nickelback coming off, off the side there? It could be a bunch of different guys. So there's more versatility in a 3-4 when you're rushing the passer and you can disguise things better. All right. Now again, the big weakness of the 3-4 is that while sure it gives you more versatility, it gives you a better opportunity to disguise things, make it tougher on the quarterback, on, on the offensive coordinator, it's 
just harder to find the specific body types that you need to play that scheme. Guys like Jordan Davis don't grow on trees, guys. That's not like an old man saying that, but they don't. They're really hard to find. Guys that are that big, that strong, and can move the way Jordan Davis does, can eat up space, that can two-gap. It's really hard to find guys like that. They're just rare. Those are unicorns. It's tough to find outside linebackers that can rush the passer and play in space and also set the edge against the run. Think about a guy like Adam Anderson. Like, yeah, Adam Anderson is, we know he can he can rush the passer. We know that he can play in space. He's done that for his entire career, but he's had trouble setting the edge. Guys like Aziz Ojulari, guys who can who can drop into coverage, but can also rush the passer, can also set the edge. Those guys are hard to find. They're harder to find than a 4-3 defensive end. It's just that simple. So while I do like that defense better, if you can find all the pieces to that scheme, it's just hard to find those guys. And that's why some teams don't, they stick with the 4-3 because you can, especially teams that don't recruit as well as a, as a team like Georgia, you can find guys to fit the 4-3 scheme a lot easier than you can to find those specialty guys that fit that 3-4 scheme. So I hope that's a, a decent answer to kind of at least give some semblance of an explanation of why I prefer a 3-4 and what the difference is there. Yeah, awesome. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right, next up we have a question from Jake. He says that over the past few years, he's seen the Georgia defensive line shift right before the snap. Yep. A lot. A lot. You've seen this, Charlie. Yes. So he wants to know if that's something that Georgia tries to do to draw the offensive line off sides, or is there a deeper tactical advantage? Yeah, that, this is an awesome question. Actually, this is another thing I wanted to include on one of our scheme episodes. I wanted to do this when we were talking about like why we were so dominant against the run, but we just covered so much in the episode and threw so much at you. I, did, I wanted to like take at least a few things. I didn't want to throw everything at you. But this is a great question. So and you guys, I'm sure, if, again, if you've watched our games, which you've listened to this show, I know that you do. I know that you've seen this. We're right before the stat. Our defense line shifts, right? And it causes a lot of the time, not every time, but a lot of the time, it causes the offensive line to have a false start. And we don't do this every snap. You can't do it every snap or teams get wise to it. Part of what makes it so effective is that the offensive line doesn't know when you're going to pull it out. And we do a great job of using it in critical moments. If it's a critical third and short, third and two, third and one, you pull that out, boom, false start. Now it's third and seven. Now it's a total different ball game. That could be late in the game, critical moment. And Kirby does a really good job of identifying those moments and putting it to use. And we call this stemming. Okay, that's the, I guess the technical word. Yeah, it's it is a shift. I mean, if you want to call it a shift, that's fine. It is what it is. But if you hear Kirby Smart talk about it, or any defense coordinator talk about it, they're going to call it stimming. All right, the defense line is stimming. They're moving right before the snap. And absolutely, Jake, you're 100 percent right here, man. 
one of the, and probably the primary reason that we do it, especially when we do it in critical moments, is to try to force a false start. I've actually heard Kirby talk about this. Think about the Notre Dame game a couple years ago at home when we got all those false starts in that game. Remember that, Charlie? Yes. A ton of false starts in that game. Well, that wasn't by accident. We had identified, I think it was their right tackle, I want to say, in that game. If I remember correctly, I could be wrong. I want to say it was the right tackle. But whoever it was, we had identified him as a guy that had a number of false starts in his career. And when you're coming coming into Sanford Stadium, and maybe with the loudest environment in Sanford Stadium history, one of the most anticipated games in Sanford Stadium history, at the very least, at night, with the new lights going on, everyone's crazy. It's, it's a huge game. We all know that. We thought, huh, maybe in critical moment, that guy might be vulnerable to one of these stems. He might jump off sides. And he did it multiple times in the same game. So absolutely a big part of that is trying to draw teams off sides. And we have done that with great effect over the past couple years. And Kirby, this is something that's relatively new with Kirby Smart's defense. You go back to when he was at Alabama, they didn't use this. He didn't use this when he first got here to Georgia. In 2017, opponents had three false starts against us the entire season. Three false starts. That's it. Well, we decided going into the 2018 season, one of the adjustments that we were going to make was to introduce more stimming to our defensive line. And what happened? The number of false starts we forced jumped up to 18 in 2018. Charlie, you know I'm bad at math. I'm pretty sure 18 is six times more than three. Good job. Woo, let's go. That was a tough one. But we multiplied the number of false starts we forced by six. Six times more false starts in one year because we're stimming. Go to 2019. In the first three games alone in 2019, which includes the Notre Dame game, there were seven false starts that we forced in the first three games alone. So obviously that has a major effect on the offensive lines when you stem like that. It's tough, guys, because when you see the defensive line just move real quick like that, it's incredibly difficult to not flinch. I mean, because you're talking just a flinch, just a, just a minuscule little flinch is a false start. And it's really, really tough to not do this, especially when you're in a critical moment, you're in a hostile environment, the crowd's going crazy. It's really, really tough. So that's definitely a big part of it, no doubt. But that's not the only aspect to this. There, are, there is a deeper tactical advantage to it as well. One of the things that really does help us with, we just talked about the, the different techniques, the defense vitamin, zero tech, one tech, three tech, so on and so forth. Well, if you line up in one front and then you stem to another, that is extraordinarily difficult for the offensive line to adjust because we don't stem as soon as they get the line of scrimmage and put their hands in the dirt. We do it at the very last second. And the way we do it is our inside linebacker, he's the one that calls that. He'll say move. And their job essentially is to figure out what is the indicator for that team. Like what is their step indicator? Do they clap? Do they point? Do they say something? Like whatever it might be. Do they move their leg? Like whatever it is, you got to find the indicator. Once the inside linebacker figures that out, it's his job to shout move. We shout move. Our coaches will tell the referees before the game, hey, our inside linebacker is going to say move. We're not trying to say hut. We're not trying to draw. We're not trying to simulate the, the snap count or anything like that. We're saying move. So don't throw a flag on us for delay a game or whatever. And it's their job to do that. So if you move right before the ball is snapped, it's very difficult for the offensive line, the offense in general, to figure out what their new blocking responsibilities are. So you might go from an even front and stem to an odd front, or you might go from an under front and stem to an over front or to a mint front. There's a variety of things that we can do. And guys, it's really tough. The offensive line gets the line of scrimmage. They're looking at where's the defensive line aligned, okay? All right, and that's how they kind of figure out who's got who, what the blocking assignments are. So if you stem right before the snap, 
it's really, really tough. And one thing it can also do if you're playing a team that, that really likes to run with a lot of tempo, it can help slow down those tempo offenses if you do it right before the snap because it can kind of throw their blocking off and force them to look over the line to the, to the sideline and change a player audible or whatever it might be. It just slows things down. But it's something that we've used. We've really started using the past couple of years and we've used it to great effect. And I certainly don't expect to see us stop using it anytime soon. All right. Thank you again. These are great questions. These are awesome. I mean, we got great listeners. They know their stuff. All right. Next up, Corey wants you to explain the ins and outs of the different types of coverages. He says that he understands cover two means two deep. Mm-hmm. Cover three means three deep. But mm-hmm. why do teams run each coverage? What are their strengths and weaknesses? Oof. What about quarters coverage? And what does Georgia run? So yeah. I'm just going yeah, to... I could go for two hours I'm going to leave the room. No, you're not. You just well, text I, no, me when you're done no, with this. No, no, no. Uh, okay. I'm just kidding. I'm gonna sit and listen. I could, I could go for this yes. Could go for I mean, I could do an entire hour. episode of way longer More, than that. Well, I could do half an hour on each defense or each yes, coverage. So, all right. So, Corey, great question, man. Um, I was actually trying to save. I was gonna save this for next off season. We do another, when we do another scheme theme series, and we will. But I'll give you guys since you asked for it. I'll give you a, a very, very basic crash course overview on some of these coverages, but you got it, Corey. You're right, man. I mean, the basics here, cover two does mean you have two deep safeties, all right, or two deep defenders. Typically, it's going to be your two deep safeties, a two high safety look, or what we call a middle of the field open. Cover three does mean you have three deep. There's different variations of cover three. You can have two deep safeties and one deep corner. You can have two deep corners and one deep safety, one safety rolled up, but you got to have three deep defenders. Basically, in a cover two, your two deep safeties are going to divide the deep portion of the field in half. One safety's got one half of the field deep, and the other's got the other half of the field deep. And at cover three, you've got uh, typically let's just go let's go with one safety in the deep middle, and you got two cornerbacks dropping, kind of bailing at the snap, and they get a deep third also. So you're basically breaking the deep portion of the field into thirds. It's that simple, okay? So cover two, cover three. There's more than just that. Let's, let's stick with cover two and cover three here real quick. So cover two. Why would you run cover two? Traditionally, you would run cover two because you're trying to give safety help over the top. Like, like everyone's talked all offseason, Charlie, about our our cornerbacks and how there's a lot of inexperience. And we're all worried about that, right? Yes. Well, one of the things that you might want to do to help a young group of cornerbacks like Keeley Ringo or Jalen Kimber, if one of those guys has to play, which probably one of them is going to have to play, is you don't want to leave them out there on an island. We've, we've heard people say this, right? Leaving a cornerback on an island. If you leave a cornerback on an island, that means he's, he's out there one-on-one man coverage with no safety help. That's tough for a young cornerback or really any cornerback. So to help those cornerbacks, especially if you're going against elite receivers like maybe Alabama last year, right? You would really like to have a safety over the top to help that corner out if he gets beat deep, all right? You'd really, really like that. Now, if you're in cover two, what the cornerback is going to do is he's he's got flat responsibility, right? He's out there in the flat. If there's any offensive player, any skill player that comes out in the flat, he's got to take that man. Now, if no defender, if no offensive player comes into the flat, then the cornerback is going to keep sinking with that receiver, keep sinking with that receiver if he's going vertical, all right? And that's that's a, the basis of cover two. You have two deep safeties covering the deep halves, and you have five underneath defenders. It's That's the very, very basic crash course form. and go into a lot more detail but that's the base of it. Now, the weakness of a cover two is that you can get run on because if you're in a cover two and you have both safeties deep, then you're not adding extra bodies to the box. Basically, no one runs cover two against Georgia because we run the ball so well and we run it so often. If you run cover two, we're going to run the ball every single snap. And that's, and that's going to be tough for you to consistently hold up against because 
we are just so good on the offensive line. We have such good running backs and we're so committed to it that at some point, the defense is going to have to try to get another body in the box. And so that's why we traditionally see a lot of cover three, okay? Now, cover three is a defense where you're, it's a, it's a defense that teams use to try to get more run support in the box. Because again, if you have one deep safety with the middle third and you have two cornerbacks each taking the outer thirds, that means you can roll that other safety up into the box and run support, all right? Now in pass coverage, that safety that's rolled up in run support, he's got flat responsibilities. But there are some major vulnerabilities to cover three also. Teams are having a hard time these days running cover three with the advent and the proliferation of RPOs because when a team rolls the extra safety in the box, as a run support player to try to gain the numbers advantage in the box and just outnumber the the blockers on the offense. Well, what teams have done, what offenses have started to do is you just RPO that player. He is the guy. That safety you're rolling into the box, he is the guy that you are optioning off of in the RPO. If he attacks the run, which is why he was brought there in the first place, that's why he was put into the box is to to help in run support. And he knows that. So when you get a little play fake, he's going to take a step towards line of scrimmage. And then now he's beat. You just throw the ball over his head behind him and boom, you got an RPO. Or if he tries to stick with with the receiver, now he's basically taken out of run support and now you can still run the football. So cover three has become really, really hard for defenses to run these days, at least in any sort of consistent fashion, because teams can just RPO you to death. Now, the other major vulnerability to cover three is four verticals, which is an offensive play, a pass play that is old as time. It's old. It's as old as the forward pass. It's very simple. Four verticals. You take. It's exactly what it sounds. You take four receivers. You run them vertical. Now there's different variations of that, but you just run them vertical down the field. Think about it, guys. If there's three deep defenders, right? You've broken the deep portion of the field into thirds. Well, if you send four verticals, four offensive players vertical. That means one of those guys is going to be open. Usually what the quarterback does if you run four verticals against cover three is you read the safety. You run two guys at the seam. And whatever offensive player, whatever receiver the that deep middle safety takes, you throw to the other guy. So if he if he decides he wants to take the left vertical seam, then you throw to the right vertical seam. And it's just it's almost impossible to stop. If you run if you run four verts and you're able to block it and protect the quarterback and the quarterback reads it correctly. It's almost impossible to stop. So you don't see as much cover three as you used to. RPOs, four verticals. It, I don't want to say it's obsolete, but you don't see it all that much, at least not a ton of it. And uh, I'll go back to cover two real quick. One of the ways to attack cover two also is the honey honeypot. So again, I mentioned if there's a receiver that goes in the flat, the cornerback's got the he's got the flat. And you got that deep safety come to the top. So there there is a gap there between the cornerback who's now in the flat defending that flat receiver and the safety trying to get over the top there. There's a, a brief little gap there. We call that the honeypot where the quarterback can fit that ball into. And so that's also a vulnerability of cover two. Uh, so that's cover two, that's cover three, very basic form of those. Uh, quarters is one you hear a lot about. Quarters is essentially cover four, but it's a very flexible version of cover four. So if cover two is two deep safeties, cover three is three deep safeties, you would think, okay, well, quarters, think about it, quarters, there's four quarters in the hole, right? Well, you would think that's just cover four, so originally four deep guys every snap. That's just not how it works. So basically, quarters is man coverage with the ability to turn into four deep if necessary. And the only time that quarters coverage is a four deep defense is if your number two receiver, and you number your receivers on the outside in. So number one receiver is your guy closest to the sideline. He's on the outside, and you number it in one, two, three. 
the safety, each, both safeties are reading the number two receiver on their side. It could be a slot receiver. It could be a tight end. It could be a running back. If that receiver, whoever the number two receiver is, releases vertical, then that safety has that receiver in man coverage vertically down the field. All right. And it's, and it basically amounts to, to cover four because you got the two outside. So if they ran four verticals against quarters coverage, it would be a base like four deep because the two cornerbacks, they would take their their receivers, the X and the Z, they would take them deep vertically. And then the two safeties would take the number two receivers on either side deep vertically as well. Why you see a lot of teams run quarters these days, why it has become so popular is because it is a way to get numbers in the box if that number two receiver does not go vertical. So the safety is reading the number two receiver. If that number two receiver releases vertically, he's got a man coverage. But if that receiver does not release vertically, and in the, especially if the safety reads run, he is triggering downhill hard in run support. So basically it allows you to get like nine guys in the box against the run, but also can convert and morph into cover four if it's a pass play where you got four verticals going down the field. So it's flexibility in defending the run and the pass. Four verticals plus the run has made it a really popular defense these days. Pat Narduzzi, when he was at Michigan State, his defense coordinator really popularized it. He still runs it at um, at Pitt. But in cover four is really hard to decipher when you're watching it because it can look a lot like man coverage. In fact, it typically looks very, very much like man coverage. The only time it's really cover four is if all four receivers go vertical. So if you see us playing like Presby on the outside, you say, oh, we're just in man coverage. It Chances are it might be quarters, a version of quarters that we're playing. It just depends on whether that number two receiver goes vertical or not. So that's your basic zone coverage. Um, man coverage, we, what we play a lot of is man under or two man. So two man is where you have two deep safeties, but you're playing, and they have the two deep halves of the field, but you're playing man coverage everywhere. Else. Every other defender is playing man coverage. So that helps us because Kirby really likes to play that press man aggressive coverage on the outside. And if you get beat though, Charlie, like let's say Keely Ringo gets beat this year if he's out there, well, you still have that safety net of a deep safety back there. So you get the best of both worlds. You have the two deep safeties that can help on vertical routes, but you also play that aggressive press me on the outside. So we play a lot of that. Kirby likes to play a lot of what him and Saban call uh, three match, which is a pattern match. It's like it's kind of like matchup zone if you're familiar with that in basketball. And Charlie's like taking deep breaths. So if you're like, oh my God, are you over? Uh, almost. So I just want to mention this one real quick because I think we talked about this before, but three matches, we're, we're playing cover three, but we're playing man coverage within our zones. We're playing matchup zones. So any receiver that comes in our in our defender's zone, you have a zone, but any receiver that comes there, you play him man. And then if he goes to another guy's zone, you release him and look for somebody else coming into your zone. Now you play him man. So it's kind of like matchup zone in basketball, if you guys are familiar with that. And we don't run that as much as we used to. But that's still certainly something in our arsenal. So I know that was very, very quick and that was a crash course, but at least that's something. We'll go into a lot more detail with all those coverages next year, I promise you, with our scheme theme month next offseason. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. 
Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right. We have two questions left. The next one's from Brandon. Um, he says that he hears a lot about quarterbacks having high football IQs mm-hmm. and they're good at reading a defense. So what exactly are the quarterbacks reading on any given pass play? So you're talking about Jake Fromm? Yeah. <laughs> like, he doesn't have much physical ability, but then they can read defenses, right? Yeah, I mean, and you hear this about JT as well. Okay, this is another one I could go hours on. What is a quarterback reading on any given pass play? All right, I'm going to try to streamline this for you guys. All right, what are they reading? Okay, let's break it down by section here. So the first thing they're going to look at is the front. Are they in an even front or an odd front? Because you know that can determine whether you want to run the football against different looks. Are they in an over front, under front, a bare front? A bare front is like a five-man front, essentially. Then after they look at the front, their eyes are going to go to the safeties. All right, the safety is key. That's if I had to say, if there's one thing a quarterback's really looking at when they're ringing defense, they're looking at the safeties. We just talked about this to Alabama last week when we were talking about how we can kind of become more Alabama-like offensively this year. Alabama under Sarkeesian, they're reading the safeties, and a lot of offenses do that these days. That's not unusual. And when the quarterback looks at the safety, there's a couple of things they're looking at. Number one, the first thing they're thinking is, what family is it? And when I say what family it is, what I'm talking about is, is it middle of the field open? or middle of the field closed. And let me make that more simple. Middle of the field open, I'm just using the terms that coaches use. Middle of the field open means that you're basically in a too high safety look where there is not one safety sitting right there in the middle of the field. All right, you know, too high safety look where there could be cover two, it could be quarters, it could be two, two man, but you got two high safeties. Or is it middle of the field closed where you have one high safety sitting there in the middle of the field. If it's one high safety with its middle of the field closed, it's either cover three or it's cover one. Cover one is man coverage with just one high safety. All right. So that's the first thing they're looking at when they're looking at the safeties. All right. And then they're also going to look at kind of get some coverage tips there. Look at the body language. Is the guy kind of just stand there, you know, lackadaisically? Is he kind of like, you know, getting to a stance? There's different things you can look at. And that's kind of a game plan specific thing when you're watching film. So you look at the front, you look at the safeties, decide is it middle of the field open, middle of the field closed, gives you that can break down what coverage it is. If you know if it's middle of the field open, if it's that family, it's cover two, quarters, or two man. If it's middle of the field closed in that family, you can break it down and say it's either cover one or cover three. All right. You know it's some sort of either, well, I guess it's either man coverage and cover one or it's zone coverage and cover three. Then his eyes are gonna go to the corners. And there's a lot of things the corners can tell you. He's going to look at the corners and first determine, okay, what is their alignment? Are they aligned on the inside shore? Are they taking inside leverage on our receivers? Are they taking outside leverage on our receivers? Because that's probably going to tell you what route your receiver is going to run. Okay, because receivers have to read these things too. If the guy's playing with hard inside leverage, then that you're probably going to have to make some sort of route adjustment there. Maybe you want to run a fade. Maybe you want to run a quick speed out. If he's playing with hard outside coverage, taking away the out routes, maybe you want to run a slant. All right, that's going to take. And quarterbacks, when they they're looking at these things, they'll they'll signal. Sometimes you see the quarterback signal, kind of look at the receiver. They're looking at the alignment of the quarterback and saying, okay, based off where he's aligned, we're now going to run this route. So you're looking at that. You're also looking at the depth of the cornerback. If the cornerback is playing off. That might tell you what's cover three. If you look at it, you say, okay, well, all right, we got middle of the field closed. You got one high safety. So that tells me it's either cover three, which is a zone coverage, or it's cover one, which is a man coverage. So now I can break it down to basically two coverages. 
Well, let me get a little more information. Now I'm, I'm looking at the cornerback. If the cornerback is playing off the receiver with one high safety, chances are he's doing that because he's trying to get to a deep third. It's cover three. Or if he's playing up in his face like press man, it's probably cover one. So you can get an idea there. All right. And then you just want to look at the cornerback's eyes. You can get more of a key there. If the quarterback, if the cornerback is looking at the quarterback, it's probably zone coverage. He's going to be reading the quarterback's eyes there. If the cornerback's eyes are locked on the receiver, it's probably man coverage. So you can, and, and they try to disguise this, guys. Like you'll see cornerbacks sometimes they'll get up in the in the receiver's face like it's press man, but in the snap they'll bail, and they're reading the quarterback's eyes. So if, if you're a quarterback before the snap, you want to look at that cornerback's eyes. Is he trying to glance in at you, or are his eyes locked in on that cornerback? Because that can give you an idea: is it truly press man coverage on the outside? Or is he trying to show that and he's going to bail and it's going to be cover three and trying to disguise it and, and screw with me there before the snap, all right? And then you want to look at the linebackers, all right? After you look at the corners, you want to look at the alignment of the linebackers. You want to look at their stance. You can get, you can get alerts to that. You also look at how the safety corresponds to the linebacker. If you have a safety that's over the top who starts to move over a linebacker, like right on top of him, that tells you there's probably some some sort of pressure coming. That linebacker is blitzing because that cornerback, that safety is behind the linebacker for a reason. He's going to replace him in coverage, all right? So there's all those things that the quarterback is looking at. So you look at the front, you look at the safeties, determine what family it is. It helps you kind of narrow down the choices of what coverage it might be. Then you look at the corners, they give you more information and further narrow down the coverage. Linebackers can help you figure out where the pressures might be coming from. So you go through all of that. There's a lot of things the quarterback's thinking through. And that's why it's hard to find quarterbacks can, that can do this, guys. It's very rare because you're doing this in a split second, okay? Especially once the ball snaps. Because you'll look at all this pre-snap and you'll get a feel for what you think the coverage is. But then that could change post-snap based on what the defense does. So you want, you want to get your feel for it pre-snap, but then you have to also confirm that post-snap and if it's not confirmed as something else, then you got to have an answer for it. And you got to do that without freaking out and panicking and make a mistake. And those guys are hard to find. They're just hard to find. All right. Is that good enough, Charlie? Short enough for you? Streamlined Wonderful. enough? Wonderful. There we go. Fantastic. All right. Last question for today. Michael wants to know the difference between a two-gap player like Jordan Davis and a one-gap player. So I probably should have talked about this earlier. That's my bad. That's cool. That's cool. Uh, one-gap versus two-gap. Pretty simple here. So Jordan Davis is a big... I don't know, he's a large human being. He's a massive hulking man, right? So two gap, we talk about the gaps, right? Uh, we talk about, we talk about the technique. So there's there's A gap, B gap, C gap, D gap. Because the A gap is between the, to either side of the center, is between the center and the guard. B gap between the between the guard and the tackle. C gap is, is between the tackle and the tight end. And D gap is outside the tight end, right? Okay, so those are your gaps. Now a defensive lineman that's a two gapper like Jordan Davis is a guy that can play two gaps at the same time. So let's say Jordan Davis lined up in a zero-tech nose tackle position, right? Like we talked about earlier, zero-tech's head up on the center, okay? We can apply this now. He's head up on the center. So what Jordan Davis as a two-gapper is going to do at the snap is he is going to attack the center, all right? And he's going to control the center. He's going to grab the center, get his hands on him, and he's going to basically bench press the center, all right? And keep him at arm's length. And he's reading. Now, if he controls the center and can eat up that space, he has the ability to go to either the strong side A-gap or the backside A-gap. He has now controlled two gaps, and he's big enough and strong enough to do that, okay? Those guys are really hard to find, 
All right. Now, a two-gap player, generally speaking, is not trying to get pressure into the backfield. They're not trying to rush upfield. They're trying to hold at the line of scrimmage. It's what Kirby calls anchoring. He's trying to anchor at the line of scrimmage. Imagine he just throws his anchor down and he ain't moving. All right. And the running back comes in either one of the gaps that he's got, he's taking him down. All right. That's what Jordan Davis is exceptional at. And those guys are really hard to find. A one-gap player is a guy, as you can imagine, has just one gap. This is what you see in 4-3 schemes a lot more. This is what Clemson's guys do. They don't two-gap. They're not big enough or strong enough to do that. They are one-gap players. Now, the advantage to one-gap is that you can get upfield and you can be more disruptive in the backfield. You can create havoc, all, get tackles for loss, all those kind of things. But there's also a negative side to that as well. Sure, you can create a lot of havoc. You can get some tackles for loss. You can create negative plays. All those things are great. But if you rush up field like that as a one tech and you get too far up field, well, now you vacate that area and there's no one in that gap line of scrimmage. And that can create a lot of big plays against the run. So there's give and take there. Also, if you're playing a mobile quarterback and you have a, a, a one gap kind of defense and your guys are trying to get up field rushing the passer, if you have a Lamar Jackson type quarterback that can run the football like that, or Jalen Hurts or Kyler Murray, whatever, if you get too far upfield out of your rush lanes because you're just rushing with reckless abandon like a lot of these one gap teams do, well, now you've created now your running lanes for those dual threat quarterbacks to take off and just gut you with their legs. So we do more two gapping. We don't exclusively do two gapping. Guys like Jalen Carter, I saw him one gap a lot last year. It makes sense because he's a guy that can do a lot of that. Typically, your one gappers are guys that are quicker, more explosive, maybe not quite as big. They can't hold up and just kind of anchor on the line there and just by sheer strength and size, just take up space for two gaps. Whereas your two gappers are those just big hulking guys at like Jordan Davis that might not be as explosive, but their value comes to the fact they can eat up space and cover two gaps at one time, which is really, really valuable because if they can eat up two gaps at one time, that means there's another player that's out there free, like a linebacker, like, I don't know, a Roquan Smith that's running around free with nobody blocking him, and he's just making tackle after tackle when he's scraping across the field. So that's your one gap and two gap. It kind of, again, depends on your scheme. It depends on your, your coordinator's preference. It depends on just the personnel you have. You know, we've, we've adjusted at times. Right now, we have guys like Jordan Davis where we can two gap. But if we next year, if we don't have a guy like Jordan Davis, you might have to see us one gap. So like when Michael Barnett was playing to, to spell Jordan Davis in, in years past, he would do more one gapping because he's not as big as Jordan Davis. So that's the basis there, the two gap versus one gap. That it? That's it for this week. All right, guys. Well, we really, really do appreciate this. I guess this is it for our formal scheme theme episodes for the rest of the, the off season, which... Well, we might throw in some mailbag. Yeah, and that's the thing, guys. Like, just because we're not running a full-on scheme theme episode does not mean that scheme-related questions are off the table. If you've got a scheme-related question, you guys know how much I love just talking X's and O's and talking the nuts and bolts of football. Throw them our way any chance you get. Anytime something comes to mind, send them our way. We can throw them into any regular mailbag. Happy to do it. I just don't know if we're having any like full-on dedicated scheme theme episodes like we've had for the past couple months because we just got a lot to cover here as the season very quickly approaches. And I am cannot tell you guys how excited I am for that. But all right, guys, that does it for it here today. Hopefully, maybe, possibly, who knows, we'll be able to keep Charlie around for a couple weeks, maybe. Charlie, can I hold you to it? Aren't I doing one later this week? Maybe. Can you? I don't know. I, at this point, I just don't know when you are or not going to be in town. I told you to let me know when you needed me, and I will Well, are you going, yes if you're not in town, then no. are you going to be in town? Yes. Great. Fantastic. Maybe we'll have Charlie back on next week. But uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's great to have you back. I know I've given you some crap for 
being gone for so long, but it is great to have you back here, be able to talk to someone other than just myself. But we appreciate it, guys. Hope everyone has a great week. Actually, we'll be, I don't know what I'm saying. We'll be back later on this week with our long-awaited, long-promised kickoff of our annual summer scouting enemy series as we break down the clemson tigers so be looking forward to that guys have that for you later on this week but thanks for listening for charlie i'm tyler and as always go dog